The scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Good morning, my name is Jake. I am part of the team. Don't worry, we're going to jump into it because I know we're all very excited for the text that was just read. I want to just highlight something. Last week we read in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul said this, So whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And he was saying that to summarize chapters 8 to 11. At the end of the day, whatever you do, eating, drinking, not eating, not drinking, do it all for the glory of God. But it's also a bridge verse. You see, in chapters 12 to 14, we're going to see now what it means for us to gather together as the people of God to the glory of God. Why does Sunday morning matter? Is basically the question we're going to be asking. Why does the glory of God in Sunday morning and on Tuesday night at our worship night, why why does it matter? These are questions we're going to be asking over the next three weeks and then again in the fall when we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 12. See, it seems as if to the Corinthians' credit that they've been trying, trying to glorify God in their gatherings. Paul said this in verse 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He's saying you're trying. But as we'll discover, it's not working out. The the traditions that he elaborates on this morning, what follows, I don't need to tell you. I felt it in the room. Maybe you felt it too. Uh, This is controversial. It's controversial outside the church, right? Outside the church. If you're not a Christian and you walked in this morning or you're new to church, you might be wondering what sort of patriarchal society you sort of wandered into this morning. If you are a Christian, it's controversial inside the church. Many trees have been killed. Must much uh, ink spilled on trying to understand this passage. And considering the controversy, some would suggest we leave it alone. Just gonna skip 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. But our aim this morning, and we must keep this before us, is singular. To give God all the glory in our gatherings. That's what we're doing. 
So to ignore or to leave these verses alone would not only miss the good and beautiful plan that God has for men and women, but would be in some way to risk the diminishing of the glory of God in our gatherings. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So without further ado, without further introduction, without a need to create tension, because we all feel it right now, don't we? Here's how I want us to walk through this text this morning. Three questions. Three questions. If you're writing notes, here they are. First is this. What is a head? And you're like, I know what a head is. Bear with me. What is a head is question number one. Question number two is what did this mean for public worship in Corinth? What does this mean in their day for them in the first century in that Roman outpost? And question three is what does it mean for us today and for our public worship today? So what is ahead? What did this mean for public worship in Corinth? What does this mean for us today in our public worship? If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, open them and follow along this morning. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 11.3 is the interpretive key to understanding what follows for Paul. And immediately, the language of head or headship especially in reference to a husband being ahead of his wife, this evokes in us, in our age, feelings and thoughts of oppression and domination, perhaps even abuse. But before we grab our pitchforks and light our torches, let us together ask this morning, what does Paul mean when he uses the word head? I want to give a really simple definition. As I've understood it, This is one of those words where a lot of ink has been spilled. But as I've understood it, when Paul uses the word head in our passage, when he refers to the spiritual head and not a literal head, he is saying this. He is referring, it's on the screen behind me, he is referring to a relationship where one has some sort of authority over the other. So again, it it could mean many different things. But I think foundationally, perhaps most simply, he's referring to a relationship where one has authority over another. And to help us understand the nature of this authority, this headship, Paul gives us three sort of relational examples. And the first one he says is this, the head of every man is Christ. Head of every man is Christ. The authority over every Christian, whether man or woman, is Christ. Every Christian, even wives by virtue of being under authority of their husbands who are under Christ, is subject to the headship of Christ, the authority of Christ. In short, throughout the ages, the church has professed, Jesus is Lord. This is the thread that's run through the entire church for 2,000 years. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not this world, Jesus is Lord. But, but if you're new to Christianity, again, you're new this morning, you walked into a doozy, so welcome. If you're new to Christianity, you, you might not be familiar with how Jesus uses and defines authority. Let me give you an example. One of the other places Paul repeatedly uses this language of spiritual headship, you might, you might know, is in Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, Paul talks like this. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, listen, even as Christ is the spiritual head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Listen, husbands, love your wives, listen, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus uses his authority not to dominate or subdue or coerce the church under him, but to bring her to himself through radical sacrifice. Radical sacrifice. And in doing so, Jesus is radically redefining how Christians, indeed all of us, are to think of authority. And by default, Submission. Submission, like authority, is another cultural swear word, right? It's a bad word. Submission, authority, there are more cultural swear words coming, so brace yourself. Yet yet the Bible reminds us, and I think this is true, that submission comes willingly and quickly, and dare I say, joyfully, when given the option to place ourselves under good and right authority. Is that not true? How many of us have celebrated at work when a boss is put in place, when he or she rules and reigns in a right and good way? We're like, thank you, Lord, right? Or when a good and just government comes into power, thank you, Lord. See, in explaining what it's like to be under good authority, we read David say in 2 Samuel this, listen, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, What is it like? What's the experience? What does it feel like? He says this. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is the experience of being not under bad and abusive authority, but under good authority, and joyfully, willingly submitting ourselves to that authority. Jesus continues to spell out his kingdom's new paradigm of authority and submission in this one instance where one of the mothers of two of his disciples tries to make a power play for her sons. She says, you know, Jesus, can my sons sit on your right and on your left when your kingdom comes in full? Just, you know, middle management kind of stuff in your kingdom. Can they have those positions? What does Jesus say? Matthew 20. He says, you don't get it. You've missed it. He says, you know the the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise what? Authority over them. But he says, it shall not be so among you. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's radically redefining authority. And if we miss this this morning, if you miss this point, you will miss this whole text, you will leave angry, and and we might as well not gather this morning. You have to see what Jesus has done and is doing in redefining authority and submission. See, this is the picture, this is the paradigm we are to bring with us into the second, likely more controversial relationship that Paul mentions. He says the head of every man is Christ, and then he says what? The head of every wife is her husband. We see it here. 
We saw it earlier in Ephesians 5. The husband, as head of his wife, is to follow the lead of Christ in using his authority to serve his wife. And his wife, in turn, is to joyfully and willingly submit. And like Paul says elsewhere, he roots this truth, this teaching, not in just sort of a feeling or an experience, but in the created order itself. He said in verses 8 to 9 this, right? For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's saying that the husband is the head of the wife is seen in the Genesis story. It's seen when when, uh, Adam is created first. It's seen when Eve is created to be his helper. And again, helper, another cultural swear word, but I should remind you, it's a name given to the third person of the Trinity. He says it's seen in Genesis. This headship idea in wife and husband relationship, it's seen in the created order. And the implications are significant. Our culture says that the roles of husband and wife are interchangeable. Indeed, to assign different roles in marriage is extremely backwards, they say, to use nice language. The language is not that nice. You you know this. But the Bible says, repeatedly from Genesis to Revelation, that we believe that men and women play distinct and, in fact, complementary roles within marriage. And one of the most frequently asked questions I get when I tell someone this, first, after they hit me, is, well, Jake, what does that actually practically look like? What does that actually look like? Let me take a moment. We have a lot to cover this morning, but I think this is important. What does that look like? Let me say a few things. Men, listen up. Men, I hope you're asking this morning, how can I lead my wife like Christ leads the church? I hope that's the question you have this morning. Not what's for lunch, but how can I lead my wife like Christ leads the church? Men, you might be surprised to find that the New Testament has very little to say about who does the finances or who cooks dinners or who takes out the garbage or, or even who stays home and who goes to work. But, but it does have a lot more to say about more important things. And so, for example, men, 1 Peter 3, 7 says that husbands should honor their wives since they are fellow heirs with you to the grace of life. So I ask, husband, men who want to get married, men who interact with sisters in Christ in this church, how how do you speak about your wife? What do you say about her? When no one is watching, when you're talking about your wife behind her back, how do you speak about your wife? And what's frightening, in, in Peter, he'll go on to say, First Peter, he'll go on to say that if, if you're dishonoring your wife, then the Lord's not going to answer your prayers. It's weighty stuff. Men, do you take your cues from sitcoms and locker rooms? Groaning and moaning about your wife with your friends. Or do you take every opportunity, do you go out of your way to esteem your wife? to sing her praises, 
to celebrate who the Lord has made her, to encourage her in the gifts that the Lord has given her. Man, how do you talk about your wife? Because she is a co-heir of Jesus' kingdom just like you. Or, Or how about this? A little later in Ephesians 5, Paul will say, husbands are commanded to hold fast to their wives. And just as Christ, we sang this, holds fast to us, husbands, we are to hold fast to our wives. We are to be faithful to them. Faithful with our bodies, with our sexuality, with what we do on the computer or don't do on the computer. We are to be faithful to pray to get our knees bloody and our jeans torn, interceded for our beloved spouse. Men, you are called to be faithful, to be present, even when you have no idea what to say. And I often have no idea what to say. To put down your phone because your wife needs you. Hold fast to your wife. Men, I'm sure we could come up with a list of a lot more things. But are you beginning to see, to taste what it means to be the head? Might not be what you expected. Wives, with much trepidation, can I ask, have you considered what godly submission looks like? Genesis 3 tells us that sin has touched every marriage. What was good has now turned into a power struggle. A struggle when the husband will seek to rule and dominate. In the words of Jesus, in the way of the Gentiles. Bad authority. Abusive, coercive authority. And where, instead of joyful submission, wives will reject the authority of the husband. Is it not the spirit of our age, perpetuated in movies, on TV, in our homes, that men are stupid and bumbling oafs, Homer Simpsons. And the one holding it all together, the one making it happen, is the mom, is the wife. Women, the invitation this morning, as I did with the men, is to allow scripture, not culture, nor the flesh, to hold the final word. Again, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, right before Peter talks to husbands, he says this to wives. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, and maybe you're thinking this morning, Jake, my husband doesn't know Jesus. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, And do not fear anything that is frightening. Men to Christ, wives to husbands. The the third and and last relationship we now turn to is the most head-scratching. See what I did there? Head-scratching. Thank you, Daniel. (laughs) 
I need some levity in the sermon. Please help me. Is the most head-scratching of them all is Christ to God. Paul says the head and the head of Christ is God. What we should not do here is try to work out the details of the intra-Trinitarian relationship. Lots of theologians over lots of years have gotten into lots of trouble by trying to sort of parse out the details of how the Father writes to the Son and the Son to the Father and the Son to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Father and to the Son. We're not going to do that here. But what Paul's saying is, is simply this, just as man submits to Christ and wives to their husbands, so too did Christ in his incarnation willingly submit, joyfully submit to the Father. And here's what we need to see. When it comes to issues of authority and submission, we work the wrong way. We do this. We take the numerous bad examples that we see and hear about every day, inside the church and outside the church. And what we do is we project those examples, those bad examples of authority, onto the Godhead. And we say, God must be like this. When God talks about authority, this must be what he's saying. But Jesus, the Son of God, in his own life, shows us both godly authority and godly submission. Look at John 10. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. How is he using his authority? Lays down his life for the sheep. None takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Joyful, willing submission. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In our conversations about authority and submission, we have to work very hard not to start from the horizontal and work to the vertical, but rather start with the vertical, start with the Father and the Son, and then work down, work to us, work to our relationship. And when we do this, when we start with the Father and the Son, we remind ourselves that as Christ and the Father are equally God, so too are men and women inherently equal, both image bearers, together reflecting the glory of God. And as Christ and God are mutually interdependent of one another, right? Paul says in verse 11, men and women interdependent of one another. As Christ and God are interdependent of one another, so too are men and women. Leaving verse 3, the picture is clear. Men and women together imaging God. Men and women together leading to the flourishing of humanity in Christ. Men and women together working in complementary roles both at home and in the church. We now turn to consider Corinth itself. And soon we'll see why these relationships of headship are so important. Bible's open. Second question. What did this mean for public worship in Corinth? We find our problem this morning in verses 4 to 6. In verses 4 to 6, Paul writes this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if her wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, 
But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Let's stop. Let's remind ourselves of where exactly we are in this letter. In this letter. The, the last few chapters have all had to do with Christian freedom, right? Over and over again, we've been talking about that. Daniel and, and Heath, and we've been talking about that again and again and again. What it looks like, what it doesn't look like, how our freedom is ultimately to be used and not used, but rather to seek not our own good, but the good of our neighbor. And it appears that just as men were abusing their freedom to visit brothels, remember, remember chapter 6, that was crazy, and just as some were abusing their freedom to participate in idolatry, so too now, apparently, are women in Corinth They've taken their freedom too far. How? What did they do? Are, are they visiting brothels like the men? Well, well, no. Paul says in verse 5, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And so picture, picture the scene. Close your eyes, if you will. Imagine yourself you're there. The, the church, like us, has gathered for worship. And very excitingly, it appears that there were moments in the early Corinthian worship gatherings that were spontaneous, orderly, but, but, but spontaneous, unplanned moments. And during these times, men and women would offer prayers and, and prophesy. Now, if you're wondering what, what prophecy means here, you have to wait until September because there's too many controversial issues to talk about in one morning, okay? So push pause on prophecy for a moment. I'm punting it to the fall, and I'm not apologizing for it, okay? They would pray and they would prophesy. But I also want to pause because it's worth saying pastorally that in an effort to ensure that sex distinctions are not erased, some have exaggerated their differences. And for example, prohibited women from taking any sort of leadership or exhorting role in the church. It seems pretty clear to me, in the first century Corinthian church, we see women leading in praying and prophesying. And so make note of that. The, the problem is, however, that, that during these times, women were not covering their head, either with a veil or a scarf, or a hood, or, or something else. And, and to be frank, we actually don't know what that head covering that Paul refers to is. Could, could be the hair itself. Could be a veil, could be a scarf, we don't know. And while that might sound like no problem at all to you and to us and to me, at play in Corinth were these dynamics of honor and shame. Honor and shame. And some of us are more familiar than others with those dynamics. You'll notice in verse 4 it says this. Look at your Bibles. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That is, he dishonors Christ. This includes what would have been dishonorable in Roman Corinth, which is for men to wear their hair long. He says in verse 14, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now, men with long hair here, I'm not targeting you. I like your top knot, it's very cool. But in, in Corinth, and, and archaeologists have shown this, all the statues of men with long hair from that time period are, are pictures of captives, of prisoners, 
For men to wear their long hair in this culture, in this time, in this age, was an effeminate expression. Do you understand that? I'm not attacking men with long hair. Wear your hair however you want. I don't care. Get a mohawk. I don't care. In verse 5, again, the honor and shame still at play. A wife who prays or prophesies without a head covering, it says, dishonors her head. That is, she dishonors her husband. See, when Paul says in verse 7, and maybe you notice this verse during our reading, controversially, that for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, he is not saying that a wife is again less than her husband, only that her behavior and dress reflected on her husband, either to his shame or to his honor. And in first century Corinth, all respectable married women would wear their veil outside the home as Roman law and custom prescribed. To not wear a veil in that context is to communicate something almost seductive. And if that's the case, Paul says, you might as well go all the way, shave your head, and adopt the hairstyle of a temple prostitute. That's what he's talking about there. See, Paul cares what men and women wear or do not wear in worship. Because our dress, he says, not only has a way of honoring or dishonoring our head, it also has the ability to communicate what we believe about gender and sex itself. Notice that. Namely, he's saying this, this would have been controversial 20 years ago, but it's controversial today. He's saying that there is such a thing as men and there is such a thing as women. And how we dress reflects this good and God-created reality of two genders. Thus, he says, God is glorified in our public worship when men dress and act like men. And God is glorified in our public worship when women dress and act like women. If you're lost, if you're confused, we can put the problem on the screen and we can summarize it like this. Ready? God is glorified when in our public worship, men and women dress and act according to their God-ordained gender. His glory is concealed, however, when those distinctions are hidden and thus dishonor the spiritual head. That's what Paul's saying. That's the summary. If you want to take a picture, you can take a picture. We'll leave it up there for a second. And the solution Paul gives is twofold. The solution to this problem he gives is twofold. He says in verse 10, this is why, or that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And he says, because of the angels. And we go, mm-hmm, because of the angels. I get it. But just so I know you get it, I want to just repeat that. <laughs> because of the angels. The first answer he gives is simple, right? Don't obscure, don't undermine the God-given distinctiveness of your sex. Wives, wear a veil, wear a head covering. Likewise, men, cut your hair. Don't dress or wear your hair in a way that would obscure your manliness. These are not arbitrary rulings, but a call to be sensitive to the cultural symbols that reflect the greater biblical principle. Let me say that again. These are not arbitrary rulings, but Paul's call to be sensitive to the cultural symbols that reflect a greater biblical principle. That's the first answer he gives. 
The second answer he gives is not so simple. He says, because of the angels. Now, there are, I think, two possible ways we can understand what Paul's saying here. Both are true, so I'm going to tell you both of them. Could be saying both of these things. I don't know which one he is saying, but could be saying both of these things, and they're both glorious. The first thing Paul could be saying is this. Hey, Corinth, remember when I told you that when you went to the temple, you were actually participating with demons? On the flip side, when we gather together as the church, when we glorify God in our singing, in our reading of his word, in our communion meal together, we're actually participating in something divine, even supernatural. There are angels present, is what Paul's saying. You know, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 5.21, when he wants to emphasize the seriousness of a command, he'll say this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. And so too now, when he wants us to get the seriousness of our public worship, the, the seriousness of what we're doing this morning, what we will be doing on Tuesday night, he reminds us that we live our lives before spiritual beings. And all of us are functional materialists and we can't believe it. We live our lives before spiritual beings, he says, that our songs here on, on earth are being joined harmoniously with the never-ending angelic song that is always occurring before the throne room of God. Like, do you want to sing now? I want to sing now. I won't because it's bad. But that's glorious. What a big, weighty picture of our public gatherings, of our corporate worship. The other thing Paul could be saying is this, and it's equally as true, is that women ought to have this symbol of authority over their heads because even the angels cover themselves in the presence of God. Do you remember Isaiah's vision, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6? Remember the vision that he saw? I'll read it to you. Above him stood the seraphim, these heavenly creatures. Each had six wings. Listen, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So whether Paul wants to remind us of the presence of angels while we gather, or even that the angels themselves are covered, the point remains the same, and don't miss it. The gathering of the people of God for public worship is a big supernatural deal. It's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. One where you and I join divine beings in proclaiming the glory of God. And so Christ City, what did you expect when you, come, when you came to gather this morning? Coffee? A hello from a friend? Those are good things. I'm thankful for those things. But don't miss the bigger thing that we're a part of this morning. Get swept up in the bigger, more glorious picture that Paul invites us into this morning. Did you come to glory in the glory of God? Have you come willing to lay aside your preferences, to have your cultural assumptions challenged by the word of God? If that's you, and if you're still with me, we should ask this. Third question. 
What does this mean for our public worship today? Notice, I said this. At the heart of what's going on in Corinth are questions of honor and shame. The Corinthian women and men are seeking honor from their wider culture at the cost of shaming their head. I should be clear here that there is good evidence to suggest that men would use the appearance of their wives to gain status in the Corinthian community. So it's women and men both seeking honor outside of Christ, both seeking approval. See, right alongside authority and submission, I'm going for the hat trick, I wanted to introduce another cultural swear word, shame. Authority, submission, shame. Shame is a topic of hot debate these days. And the popular thinking on shame is that it is all bad and is to be done away with. The answer to shame, as many authors suggest, is to get rid of shame. But what if the solution to shame wasn't pretending it didn't exist? Or what if the solution to shame wasn't dismissing it altogether? But what if shame, our shame, my shame, your shame, what if shame was always meant to be healed with honor? See, see, shame is a, a tricky thing. Shame is tricky because we can't get rid of it ourselves. I can't not just decide, and I'm just not ashamed anymore. Shame is a, a social reality, right? It's a social reality. We cannot save ourselves from shame. We need someone with higher social standing, more social credit, to stoop down and at great personal cost share their honor with us. Some of you know where I'm going already. See, like the Corinthians, we search for honor in all the wrong places. We want to be honored at work. We look for honor online. We search for honor even among people we do not know in context of little consequence. I walked into the bike shop the other day, and I tried my hardest to sound like I knew what I was talking about, and I didn't. And I cared so much but what that 21-year-old guy thought of me. And it was not good. Lots of shame. We care so much, don't we? When we seek to first find our honor in these places, we do so at the cost of bringing shame to our head, to Christ himself. What's more, we either forget or reject the honor that is ours in our union with Christ. Here's the good news this morning. Did you know that you have all the honor you could ever need this morning? Jesus Christ became a man and suffered humiliating dishonor, naked crucifixion, the Son of God, that you might be His. That's what He did for us, that the lowly would be lifted up, the outcasts brought in, seated at the table, and not just seated at the table, but dressed in royal robes. From, from the pit of shame to the highest of honor in a matter of moments, in Christ Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have been honored. 
And so when we come together then to worship, we come as those first honored in our union with Christ, now using our freedom to what? To honor one another. Of first importance, this is what our text must mean for our gatherings. But what about the practicalities? Notice, you don't have to look around. Notice, no women came in this morning wearing a head covering. As we move from Corinth to Vancouver, as we traverse almost 2,000 years and some 6,000 miles, one of the things that we all understand implicitly is that symbols are culturally located. I want to quote Andrew Wilson. He's a scholar. He writes this. Physical symbols mean different things in contemporary London and ancient Corinth. And if we don't translate the symbols from one culture to another, he's arguing for this thing called symbolic translation. We don't translate the symbols from one culture to another. We risk all sorts of misunderstandings. He says, in Bulgaria, for instance, nodding your head means no, and shaking your head means yes. So if you are traveling there and you want to indicate a yes, you need to change your gesture in order to preserve your meaning, or you will quickly cause a lot of frustration. So how do we translate head coverings from 1st century Corinth to 21st century Vancouver? I want to propose a few possible translations. You'll notice this morning uh, that I'm wearing a, a wedding ring. I never take it off. $50, best purchase I ever made. One of the most obvious and widely recognized signs that we honor our spouse is by wearing a wedding ring. Again, I wear mine all the time. My ring is a sign to other women in the church and outside the church that I'm not open for business, that I'm committed till death do us part to faithfully serve my wife like Christ served us. My wife should be suspicious if, if I leave the home and before I leave, I put the ring on the counter, right? We'd all be like, what's going on there? We understand that culturally. Now again, that's not transcultural. It's not all cultures everywhere, but, but at least in the one that we inhabit, the one I inhabit it is. How about this? In some cultures, not all, and certainly not all that, that you belong to, but in some cultures, taking your husband's last name is a cultural sign that you're willingly and joyfully coming under his loving authority. Again, this is not for all cultures everywhere. I know many of you, that means nothing in your culture. But in mine, it means something. This is the work of symbolic translation. And because cultures are constantly changing and in flux, we have to be adept and, and flexible at how we do this work. Rings, last names, are, are two examples of that. Nonetheless, though this changes from culture to culture, there are two things we can say that remain consistent. And I'll close with these. First, ultimately, we're asking here a question of the heart. The heart-revealing question at the center of our text is different for men and women today, but it actually is, is, is one simple question. Do, do you want to honor your spouse? Do you want to do whatever you can? Do you want to use your freedom to honor your spouse? Men, are you playing down your manliness, Paul would say, maybe using toxic masculinity as a scapegoat in order to let yourself off the hook, in order to lower the bar? Are your outward gestures of solidarity with women actually just an excuse for you to preserve your life instead of laying it down? Heart questions. For women, 
Question could be, for example, is your desire to keep your last name truly a cultural thing? If it is, that's great. Or does it reflect your rejection of your husband's God-given authority? We're asking questions of the heart. Do you hear me? Symbolic translation is of no use if it proceeds from a heart wanting to justify itself instead of wanting to walk in obedience to God's word. It's a question of the heart. Second thing is this. Celebrating the goodness of being a man and being a woman in our dress and in our relationships is one of the best ways I think we can image the gospel to our world. Evangelistically. Just this past week, I was picking up uh, takeout for my wife on Mother's Day. Yep, that's what I was doing. Picking up takeout for my wife, waiting in the restaurant, the food is being prepared. And out of the corner of my eye, I, I see two people. And I say people uh, because while they had the beards and shaved head of men, the clothing was clearly that of a woman. It's not me just being sexist, it's clearly that of the woman. That was the intent. I want to be clear, so clear, abundantly clear. In these moments, as Christians, our call is not to accost or harass or rebuke. Paul has said earlier in this very letter, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? I want to be so clear about that. No, our our call is to, to have our hearts broken because these people desperately need Jesus. They need a gospel that not only says that Jesus died for you and rose for you and is coming back for you, but a gospel that says your God-given gender, far from being insignificant, far from being fluid, is actually of tremendous value in reflecting the glory of God. These image bearers need to hear, indeed all who are held captive by the androgynous spirit of our day, that the path to belonging is not to belong to yourself, but to belong to Christ. It's the bow the knee to Christ, who used his authority and power that was his from all eternity, not to whip us into submission, not to abuse us or coerce us, but who used his authority to die for us, to woo us back to himself. So I don't know how you've come this morning. Again, you came for a doozy. But the invitation this morning for all of us is to come to him. Allow God himself to redeem and renew the ugly words of authority and submission and shame. To know the honor that is yours in Christ Jesus and to enjoy the freedom of being released from the weight of having to define yourself. Would you stand with me as we pray? So, Father, we come to you now acknowledging that if there is to be any fruit in our lives from your word, it is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the word must fall on fertile soil if fruit is to be produced, if roots are to take to the ground. So I ask, Lord, that your word would indeed fall on fertile soil this morning, that we'd be a community that images you in our maleness and our femaleness, that glorifies you in our gatherings and seeks to love one another with long-suffering, patience, and love that comes from Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.